0: We're going to be in the book of Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 38. If you brought your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn there. Uh, if not, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. First, though, uh, I would like to start us off by reading a an article from a Christian publication some of you may or may not have heard of. Uh, this is about a year and a half old, so you may have missed the story. Uh, but like I said, we're going to start off with that, and this is from the Christian Publication called Babylon B. Hymnal publishers from around the nation confirmed Wednesday that the release of the new updated hymnals containing a new version of I Surrender All, among other refreshers and enhancement, was due. The new version of the tune, entitled I Surrender Some, was written to refresh outdated language and theology contained in the eighteen ninety six song, according to hymnal authorities. Singing words like, all to Jesus I surrender, just isn't in line with modern Christianity, a spokesperson for Hymnal Publishing, LLC, told reporters. Now Christians can sincerely belt out lines like, some to Jesus I surrender, some to him I conditionally give, without worrying if their hearts really line up with the lyrics. It is our desire to preserve these time-honored hymns while also making the lyrics so much more singable for the modern audience, the spokesperson added. Other changes were confirmed with new hymn titles like, in Christ for the most part, and how great I art. Now, maybe you can tell that's sarcastic or satirical, I should say. Uh, it's from a satirical Christian website. That, uh, But one of the things that makes satire pointed or actually useful is that it tells us something about reality. Uh, it's a way to take a truth in the world and put way too much emphasis on it, uh, kind of make some kind of made-up situation like that, but actually still communicates truth in that if we were being honest, a lot of times when we sing that song, which you're going to get a chance to at the end of the service, when we sing that song, we would sing it that way rather than the way it was written. You see, I see this same kind of half-hearted or not half-hearted, maybe three-quarters or five-eighths, not completely giving into the situation, completely giving ourselves to the Lord or to each other In marriage ceremonies, now I have a unique perspective during most wedding ceremonies that I attend because I'm standing in front of everyone officiating the ceremony. And if the if the uh, bride and groom don't have their own set of vows, I tend to stick to pretty traditional vows. And when it gets time for the ring exchange towards the end of the service, uh, again I stick to pretty traditional uh, by giving you this ring. I give myself to you. I give you so on and so forth, uh, repeated with several different things that we give each other. But One thing that I add that usually, that not usually, but sometimes on multiple occasions has caused a bit of hesitation uh, in the bride or the groom or drawn a chuckle from either one of them when they think about the reality of it is, I give you my possessions. Now, you might think that's no big deal, but if you really start to think about the whole marriage ceremony and all of the vows that we take, maybe you could see why in our culture today that that causes some people to hesitate. You know, I'll give you my home, I'll give you my time, I will give you my future, but you ain't touching my stuff, right? I'm not gonna give you my possessions. We we wanna give some, but we don't necessarily want to always give all. Because in our culture, all doesn't necessarily mean all all of the time. Most of the time it doesn't mean all. We see it elsewhere in the marriage ceremony, for instance. If all of us were being honest, all of those of us who are married. What we would have liked to have said when we were taking those vows in is, I'll be with you in sickness and in health as long as we both stay in pretty good shape. I'll be with you in prosperity and in adversity as long as our finances are somewhat manageable. And I'll be with you in good times and bad as long as your in-laws aren't crazy. You know, something along those lines might be what we were really thinking instead of the truth in sickness and in health, in prosperity and in adversity. Leaving everybody else, I will be with you in good times and in bad. We see it elsewhere in culture as well that all doesn't necessarily mean all. Have you ever been on a trip, work trip, or pleasure trip where all expenses were paid? Was it really all expenses that were paid? Did they pay your gas to get you to the airport to make that trip? Did they pay for your food while you were waiting on the plane in the airport? If you decided to get any movie or anything on the plane, was that paid for in your all expenses paid trip? Or you realize that maybe there's some expenses that weren't included in that all. Or if you've ever been to an all-inclusive resort, I have never been there, but I've heard that many of times those are a lie. That there are things that you can do at those resorts that require a premium upcharge, right? Where you got to pay a little bit more. Kind of like if you've gone on a cruise. There are some things that aren't included in the all-inclusive price. It is somewhat inclusive, not all-inclusive. And on a more somber note, maybe you've been told by someone that you trust deeply, I will always be there for you. Or I've always got your back. And what they really meant is... Sometimes I'll be there for you. When it's convenient, I'll have your back. All doesn't necessarily mean all in our culture. The same is true for each of us, though, if we're being honest. We say as followers of Jesus, as believers, that we give God our all. Yet we often compartmentalize parts of our lives away from God. All doesn't necessarily mean all from us. We're a disciple at church, but at work we're a businessman or a businesswoman we have to see the world through that lens or a disciple at church but uh, at school we we pick on the kid that always gets picked on we're a disciple at church but at home we talk to our spouse in a different way or our children or our parents in a different way we're a disciple at church and something else altogether in different instances you see, if we long to have a day-to-day passionate relationship with God, which was what we're talking about in this Everyday Love series, one of the main things that gets in the way of maintaining that day-to-day passionate relationship is our insistence on giving God some, but not all. On sectioning off, compartmentalizing off some aspects of our lives and giving Him those aspects of our life with which we are comfortable giving Him and not every aspect of our life. So Last week, we talked about repenting. Last week, we talked about turning away from sin, sin that separates us from God, and returning to God. We repent and return, and this week, we're going to talk about giving God every aspect of our life. All means all. The portion of Scripture we're about to read, known as the Great Commandment from Matthew 22, includes several instances of the word all in relation to how Jesus says we should love God. Jesus lets us know that the most important thing for the believer is to love God with everything that we have, with every part of our being. For Jesus, all definitely means all when it comes to our relationship, our loving relationship with God. So again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning. And God, we thank you for your truth. Lord, we thank you that you have given us all as we will see at the end of our service when we observe your Lord's Supper. God, we thank you for not holding back, not skimping out, but giving us everything that you have in your Son, Jesus. And God, we know that you have called us to do the same. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with us now as you tell us, as you communicate to us through your Scripture and through your Spirit. God, I pray that that distractions will be removed. God, that we would see and hear clearly what you have for us so that we might respond with a wholehearted, whole self kind of love. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, he being Jesus, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, this section of scripture here in chapter 22 goes all the way back to the chapter before it, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, and the Jewish elite, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, come to him and begin asking him questions, trying to discredit him. You see, it's no secret by this point in the Jesus story that these individuals, the Jewish religious elite, did not like Jesus. He was trying to upset the apple cart in their mind, to take their power away. The people really liked Jesus. They weren't happy with the people being happy because they liked to keep them where they were so that they could stay where they were. And so the way that they were trying to deal with that, short of killing him, which ultimately they would do, but a step they were going to take before that was trying to publicly discredit him. And so they asked him different questions to which they didn't think he would have an answer, but over and over again he responds in a way that dumbfounds them and leaves them looking a fool instead of him. The Pharisees had already been shut down in this interchange with Jesus, but they saw another opportunity when their opponents, the Sadducees, got struck down by Jesus. Not struck down, he didn't like hit them or anything, but, got, but he destroyed their argument, their question, when they asked them about marriage in heaven in the verses immediately preceding that which we just read. And so a lawyer or an expert in the law, someone who knew the Jewish law, the commands of God towards an expert degree, was likely coming to Jesus trying to again discredit him to get him to pick a portion or a command, one single command of the law, so that they could claim that Jesus didn't respect another portion of the law. For instance, if Jesus would have said that um, having no idols, no graven image, is the most important command. The pharisaical response would have been, oh, so keeping the Sabbath isn't that important. Like, this is important, but all of the other elements of the law of Jesus, you're saying they're not nearly as important as that one. It would be like someone... um, asking you what's your favorite kind of music, your response, country and western, and their response back to you would be, oh, so you hate classical music and you're uneducated. It would be that kind of response, putting words in your mouth. They weren't interested in what Jesus' favorite or greatest commandment was. They were interested in what he was going to leave out so that they could use it against him. The lawyer was likely also being sarcastic when he calls Jesus... Of respect, and rabbi uh, in, in, in their vernacular. By calling Jesus that, it's recognizing that he has some sort of authority. The Pharisees didn't believe that. So, uh, you know, when I hear the, the, the lawyer ask him, I hear him sneering from the very beginning, Oh, teacher, oh, great rabbi and leader, you know everything. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now we know Jesus responds, as we saw, and and as you keep reading, uh, responds in such a way that once again leaves the Pharisees without any response. And he rounds out chapter 22 by asking them a question back, none of them having any clue how to answer, and them all being quiet from that point forward because they realized that his intellect was superior to theirs, and there was no way they could question him or make him look bad. Now, the way that Jesus answers is he actually quotes, well, not probably, the most quoted portion of Scripture at that point. He quotes the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. It was the central scripture for the Jews for a couple of reasons. And here is that scripture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Again, Jesus is quoting this back to the Pharisees. It was a central teaching of the Jews because it communicated a couple of things. One, that God is one. In a world that they were living in, where they were surrounded by people who worshipped many different gods, the Jews were distinctive in saying that there is one God, and it is this God. It is the Lord, our God. He is one. Not only that, as God is, is one, God God in his wholeness is one. We ought to respond in our whole self by loving him as one, like uniting all aspects of our self, physical, spiritual, so on and so forth, into one in the way that we love God, loving him with our whole self. All our soul, all our might, all our strength. All means all. Now, pious Jews, including the Pharisees, would repeat this scripture twice every day. So obviously, they knew it. Obviously, they had heard of it before. Jesus was quoting something back to these men listening to them. Something that, again, they said out of religious devotion twice daily. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your strength, all your might, all your soul. That's what God was, was calling them to say, and Jesus is calling that back to them to respond in that way. He knew that that was something that they quoted twice daily. Have you ever said something so many times that you kind of get muscle memory and you say it without thinking? We do that with a lot of different habits where we do something so often that we don't think about it, there's actually some like, brain science behind it that when something becomes a habit, part of our brain shuts off, part of awareness, and we just do something out of, you know, out, of, out, of, out of habit. We could say something that way too. When somebody asks you how you're doing, I'm fine, how are you? It becomes such a rote response that we're not really thinking about it. Or we as Christians who grew up in the Bible Belt, we might sit down and pray, Lord, thank you for this meal, help it nourish my body, right before you dive into three Taco Bell bean burritos and an extra large Mountain Dew. Right? You don't really think about what you're saying, you just say it because that's what you're supposed to say, or that's what you're used to saying. Perhaps the Pharisees were in this same boat by saying this phrase over and over again, this, this Shema, this scripture that they held to be the most central of the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Maybe to the point that they stop thinking about what it really means. That all means all, every aspect of their lives. Even that aspect of their lives that kept them from, or, or allowed them to be so proud that it kept them from hearing the truth that Jesus had to say and the truth of who Jesus was. Love the Lord your God with all. The point of both the Shema and Deuteronomy and Jesus is that loving God requires our whole self. See, I talked about that rote memory thing, and I was applying it to the Pharisees. They become so used to saying that scripture. One of the first scriptures that many Christians learn as they're trying to learn scripture is, is this one, the Great Commandment. Uh, it, it's the New Testament equivalent. Of, it's just Jesus quoting that Old Testament line, and basing that as the first and greatest commandment. We do the same thing. We get so used to this loving the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our strength, or all our might, or mind, to use different places and different parts of the gospel. But we get so used to saying that, that maybe we do it out of that rote memory and forget and stop thinking about what it really means to love God with everything. The point of the Shema in Jesus is that God requires our whole self. Loving God is a full body exercise. William Barclay puts it this way. It means that to God, we must give a total love, a love which dominates our emotions, a love which directs our thoughts, and a love which is the dynamic of our actions. There is no part of our lives that we can compartmentalize away from our relationship with Jesus if we are to be obedient to this command. All means all, every aspect of our life. Any kind of human relationship that you enter into. Friendship, marriage, it reorients your entire self. You look at the world differently as a parent than you do before you had kids. You look at the world differently as a, as a married person before you were married. You look at the world differently when you're with your best friend or you're in a committed relationship of any kind. It reorients your entire self. It changes everything about your world. Why should it be any different with the most important relationship in the universe, which is our relationship with God? Love the Lord your God with all. This is the first and great commandment, Jesus says. Now, on this command, along with the one following it about loving our neighbors as ourselves, Jesus says, hangs the law and the prophets. All the teachings of God can be summed up in this one command. In other words, if we don't get these two right, we're not getting any of the others. If we don't get love God and love people down, then everything else is a waste of time. Everything else is is something that's not going to do anything for us. It's just work for work's sake if we do all of these other religious duties but fail to love God and love people. You could also say that every other religious duty or every other response to God, let's take the word religious out of it, every other act of, of, of obedience toward the Lord is a fulfillment of one of these two commands, to love God or love people. I would actually say that every other, every other spiritual response to God, every other act of obedience to God is fulfillment of both of these commands, to love God and to love people. Anytime we give of our finances, we are showing that we love God because we are giving back to him what he has given to us. And if we give toward any cause, we are showing that we love God people that God has called us to love, our neighbors as ourselves, and what those dollars are doing for that purpose. Anything that we do as response, as an obedient response to God, is done in part to fulfill these two commands, to love God and to love people. And if we fail at either of these, we fail at the whole thing. But this command, the command to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, that command is still primary, even to the command to love our neighbors as ourselves. You see, Jesus wasn't giving a trick answer. He wasn't saying, okay, Pharisee, lawyer, you asked me which is the great command. I'm actually going to say it's 1A and 1B. I'm actually going to give you two. No, he says of this command to love God with our heart, soul, and mind, with all of it, this is the first command commandment. That's a superlative. And the second is like it, he says after that. And so this is where everything starts, is our response to God, not our response to humanity. Not that our response to humanity is not important. It's a close second, but loving God comes first. You see, our love for humanity is derived from our love from God. We must love God first to adequately love mankind. It is only when we love God that we can adequately love those created in his image. Uh, How If if everyone is created in the image of God, and we do not have a loving relationship with God, we are missing part of the loving relationship that he has called us to have with other people. Not that we're not trying, not that we don't care about other people, but if we don't have that relationship with God, we are missing part of that all-inclusive, whole-self, spiritual nature of what it means to love people as well. But it's also a fulfillment. These two do go hand in hand, to love God and love people. Loving God means submitting everything that we have to God, and that includes our treatment of others. Which is why loving your neighbor as yourself comes out of this command. Jesus said it's like it. We provide evidence of our wholehearted love for God when we love our neighbor. It is one part of being obedient, perhaps one of the most important parts of being obedient to God and loving Him with everything that we have. All means all. But let me ask you this morning. Cut to the chase. Does all mean all for you today when it comes to your relationship with the Lord? We're going to sing during our time of invitation. I really want you to think about it. We're not, we're not there yet. Don't get ahead of yourself. But when we get there, we're going to sing, I surrender all, right? And as we sing those words, are they something you can sing transparently, with honesty? Now, I know we're all going to fail at some times, and honestly, none of us can honestly sing that song because we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory but it is, it is, is it where our heart's desire is at, to give God everything? Or our, is our heart's desire really somewhere else? I want to give God almost everything. Uh, everything but this broken relationship that I can't seem to find forgiveness in. Everything but whatever it is for you. Do you love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind? Do you love God with your personal devotional life? Do you give time to Him, to spend with Him, just with Him in the way that you worship Him in private? Do you love God in the way that you seek truth in Scripture and through His Holy Spirit in prayer? Do you love God by, by just sitting in times of silence with Him and, and shutting off the rest of the world? you love God with your church life, with the way that you interact with those around you, the way that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ the, the things that he has called you to, are you obedient to follow in those ministries? Do you love God with your friendships? The way that you treat people who you might not have a relationship with in this church, maybe it's at work or at school or, or it's just a social relationship that you've had for many years that goes beyond your time here at First Baptist Grandview. Do you love God in the way that you operate within that friendship? and the way that you talk to your friend and what you and your friend talk about? your marriage? Do you love God in the way that you care for your spouse and the way that you speak to your spouse? Do you love God in the way that you speak to your children or to your brothers or your sisters or your parents? And more than just speak, do you love God in the way that you serve them? Are you serving them as if you are serving God? Are you loving that neighbor, the neighbor that you live with and spend life with? Are you loving them as yourselves, which Jesus has called us to do? Do we love God with our whole heart, soul, and mind in the way that we handle our finances? In in, in the way that we give back to God or in the way way that we spend the money that God has blessed us with? Are you giving that to God? Do you love the Lord your God with everything that you are in your career? Are you looking at the world when you go into the business world, that that's a different world and and Christian morals don't work there? You have to be a little bit more ambitious. You have to act in a different way when you're at work than you are when you're at church or when you're at home because it's just a different world and you make sense of it that way to yourself. You love the Lord your God with all that you are in your political life and the way that you talk about people that disagree with you, and the way that you, you, are, you are, 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 are involved in, in the issues of our world, do you love the Lord your God with everything that you are, with your social media presence, with the way that you, 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 you represent God to the rest of the world by stuff that you throw online, Do you love the Lord your God with the way that you yell at the referee or at the coach at a sporting event that your kid is playing in? Do you love the Lord your God with all that you are? By the way, you use technology and the phones that God has blessed us with and all of the other screen time that we have. Are you willing to say no to that and yes to God? Do you love the Lord your God with all you are with your schedule or is there no time left in your schedule because you're so busy chasing other things besides the one true God? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Are you following him as if he is the one key element ingredient of your life rather than something else. Do you love the Lord your God with your intellect? Are you trying to learn more daily? Or or are you just coasting and acting like that part's not important? God wants us to love him with our heart but not our mind. I don't have to learn more. I don't have to learn more about God. No, Jesus actually says to love the Lord your God with all your mind. Do you love the Lord your God with your physical health? I'm stepping on my own toes now with the things that you put in your body and the way that you take care of your body. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength? Do you love the Lord your God with your past Allowing those things to be passed, to be forgiven, and looking forward. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind in your future by giving that to him, trusting him in that, instead of worrying about it yourself and not allowing him to help you deal with the future and lead you in the future? You see, when you keep God out of certain aspects of your life, chances are that that aspect of your life is going to suffer. If you are holding back from God, you are holding out on yourself you are not allowing God to bless you in a certain element of your life because you're saying I won't let you come here whether it's consciously or subconsciously when we keep God out of our workplace because again we have to operate a different way there ambition works in the workplace it might not be the way that I, that I interact with God or the way that I interact with my wife or husband But in the the business world, in the cutthroat world in which we live, we have to go for it, whether that's the right biblical thing to do or not. Do we explain it away to ourselves? And if we do, by chasing it ourselves, what are we missing out on? What are we missing out on because we're keeping God out of our marriage because it's just so difficult that we can't seem to bring him into it? What are we missing from God because we're not looking at the way that we parent our children as an act of, act of spiritual service to the Lord? What are we missing from God because we're not looking at the way we interact with people in our workplace as a way to love God? There are blessings in your life. That, I'm not talking like you're going to get money. I'm talking like the presence of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord blessing you in everything that you are that we are missing out on if we say to God, you cannot come here. There are a lot of Christians in the world today who have that subconsciously. They don't say to God, you can't come here. But they've compartmentalized him out of certain aspects of their life. Relationships, career, school, so on and so forth, finances. And then when that aspect of their life begins to suffer, they look to God and be like, what's up, God? Why aren't you helping me out here? How could you let this happen to me? How could you let me rack up $15,000 in credit card debt, Lord? How could you allow this to take place? All the while, he's probably like, you told me I couldn't be there. God is not going to force himself in anyone's life. He might show up in a way that you don't expect him to and make it difficult for you every now and then if you haven't given something over to him, but he's not going to force himself into your life. And if a part of your life is suffering, part of it may be because you have said no to allowing God to be there. You are holding back from God, you're holding out on yourself. Problems remain problems until they're properly dealt with. So right now, I want you to take stock of your life. Ask yourself that question. Does all mean all for you? Is there anything you're holding back, holding out from God, rather than giving him every aspect of yourself. Now, if you're wondering how, how do I find that out, that part of your life that you're keeping God out of, there's probably not any fruit of the Spirit in that part of your life. Any love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control, none of that is likely there, or at least not in large degree or most of the time. Rather, it's, it's characterized by, by grief, by, by striving, by exhausting effort. Take stock of your life and ask yourself, is there anything I'm holding back from God? Find someone in your life to help you hold you accountable as you move forward to try to give God that part of your life. Take time and right now seek his wisdom to learn how to give that back to him. I know this isn't necessarily easy. Especially if it is something like a career where you feel like you have to operate in a certain way that might not be obedient, but that's how you keep your job. I know that in all circumstances it's not always easy, but there's a way if we pray for God's wisdom. All means all. So let's give God our all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Everything that you are. Now, again, we say this knowing full well that we will fail. To be human is to be fallen, to be a sinner who is short of the glory of God. Yet, Jesus still calls us to this, to give God everything that we are, to lay down every aspect of our life. doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it means that you're giving everything to him, and seeking to follow him in every part of your life. Christian, believer, is there any part of your life you're not surrendering to the Lord. During our time of invitation this morning, there will be an opportunity for you to begin that surrender, to ask for wisdom on how to do that practically. You pray right where you're at, you can come down here and pray at the altar, you can pray with me about this situation or any other. And if there's anyone here who does not know the Lord, as Savior, this is a big surrender They give him your entire life. I would love to tell you what that looks like. Come down here and pray with me during our time invitation or find me after the service and we could talk about it then. But Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. You have this time to respond as we sing the hymn, I Surrender All. As Bill and Lynn are singing, you move in whatever way God is telling you to. Father, once again, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for being a God who gave all. And God, we thank you for your forgiveness for us and being faithful to us even when we don't give all, which all of us fail to do. Lord, while we may be imperfect, God, I pray that you would stir our hearts right now towards this obedience. God, I pray that your spirit would intercede in the hearts and minds of all of us gathered here this morning. And God, show us an element of our life, we need to surrender. We need to give to you that perhaps we're not. God, give us the courage through your spirit to be obedient. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.